and testing one, two, testing one, two, two, testing, 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 testing one, two. Hello. Testing one, two. Welcome to episode five of the Baked and Awake show. Thank you as always for spending some of your time with me. Wherever and whenever you're listening to these words, please know that I'm very glad to have your ear for these few moments. I'll try my best to entertain, and if I do well, perhaps you'll return again and again to learn about how wonderful cannabis is, how connected we are to it in our lives, and how this relationship continues to develop in a post-prohibition world. As much as we love weed, and we do love weed, it's nothing by itself. By this I mean to say that cannabis is a complement to so many things in our lives that we already enjoy. It is by turns and according to strain, relaxing, uplifting, and very often inspirational. I've been so inspired by my personal relationship with the plant that I'm sitting here recording a show for you about it. But that's neither here nor there. We don't just talk about weed on this show. No, indeed, we talk about some really weird topics. Fringe science. Paranormal investigations, mysteries of all kinds, and more than a dash of conspiracy theorizing because, well, we're stoned, aren't we? On a more serious note, however, my goal with this program and every episode of this show is to present one more somewhat relatable, fun, and real voice to the mix. To use my voice and my time to help especially those of you who are a little newer to cannabis maybe feel more comfortable knowing that really normal, functional people partake of it daily and to their great benefit. While being an ambassador for other smokers, I also want to have some fun. The way we're having fun here is by talking about things people have trouble talking about in polite society. Ancient aliens, the new world order, fiat currency, the military-industrial complex, and chupacabras. You never know. I am excited to bring you this week's episode. A day or so late due to additional time spent preparing for it. It's a show filled with exquisite cannabis flowers, a bit of hemp history, and a really fun story about a newer Pacific Northwest mystery that began back in 1997 in a little-known area, unless you're from around here, outside of Ellensburg, Washington, the Manastash Ridge. Mel's Hole touches upon numerous classic conspiracy theories and, to my mind, has not been sufficiently debunked to warrant outright dismissal as being not real or a hoax. Mel's story is a doozy, and it's all out there on the web for you to still hear if you're interested, after the taste we'll give you in today's episode. This one's a longer story, as the original radio content spans hours, and there's just tons of stuff out there on the internet, forum threads, etc., articles to get lost in as well. Uh, Before we jump into all of that today, we'll talk about uh, some old business uh, briefly, 
and then we will get on to today's content. Welcome back. Just uh, took a short pause to pack a bowl and get ready to jump into this week's episode. And we're going to lead things off with uh, a section I've been loosely referring to in my own head anyway as old business. Uh, Episode four, we covered the amazing lives and mysterious deaths of Bruce and Brandon Lee. Talked all about their incredible impact in their short lives, dead at 32 and 28 years old, respectively. If you haven't heard the story and you don't know too much about Bruce or Brandon Lee, spectacular martial arts stars, surely most folks listening to this program have at least heard the names, but if you're some of those who haven't uh, or have only heard them in passing and haven't really sought out seeing any of their movies or many any of their many interviews. Bruce Lee was also a prolific author. Um, I hope you go check out episode four and uh, check out what we had to say about Bruce and Brandon then. I would like to point out that there was a strong Pacific Northwest connection there to the Bruce Lee story. Brandon Lee uh, was in fact born here in the Northwest. Uh, Bruce Lee uh, came out here uh, in his uh, later teens, uh, early 20s, attended college out here and lived out here for most of his adult life um, back and forth to uh, China, but mostly in Seattle and uh, is in fact buried here as is Brandon at, I believe it is the Lakeview Cemetery in uh, Seattle in the northwest corner of Seattle proper there, northeast corner of Seattle proper there, excuse me. Um, I think you go up past Ravenna to get to it. Been there a couple times over the years, and it's a beautiful uh, grave site, a solemn occasion for any true Bruce Lee fan to make that uh, trek out to that area. And uh, I don't think you can get there in the uh, in the nighttime. You know, after sunset, they tend to close the gates for that particular cemetery. But I think anybody can still go up there to this day and visit those graves. Um, and unlike, notably, Jimi Hendrix's grave, which has been moved and has now been sort of um, obfuscated at the Renton Highlands location where uh, it is, um, you know, these are, are the, you know, the simple family plot for the Lee family. And, and people go there and leave gifts and mementos uh, all the time. So uh, that's the Pacific Northwest connection to the Bruce and Brandon Lee story. And that's the old business for today. Uh, We're going to roll into a little uh, chat about our strain of the week next. And uh, what I've got here in my hand is a, you know, humble little glass pipe loaded with a bowl of hash plant. And uh, those of you who have been listening a little bit know that I tend to favor Indicas, so I'll probably have a lot of fun with a lot of Indica hybrids a lot of the time around here. Um, you know, but bring it with suggestions for sativas to fool around with as well. Uh, there's plenty that I am a fan of, uh, sure. But uh, here we find ourselves with the strain of the week uh, again, an indica. I've been on this strain for the week. I've been I've been sessioning this one for a few days now. I got like a, um, you know, seven gram, like a quarter 
of this, and this is from Northwest Cannabis Solutions. Um, one of the uh, better and uh, more uh, successful uh, firms out there in in uh, the flower game in I five hundred two here in Washington. Uh, Hash plant's a cool, like kind of you know semi legendary Pokemon strain. Uh, it's it's just uh, you know known to be strong. It's it's a really um, heavier indica uh, leaning hybrid. It is a hybrid of uh, I want to say Afghan Kush and uh, Northern Lights. And we're gonna go to the Sensi Seeds description and read much of that here uh, in just a moment. But first, we're gonna take a quick puff and uh, enjoy the flavor of the hash plant. Which has been treating me great all week. A little goes a long way. And I'll, uh, I'll read the uh, Sensi Seeds description to you the reason why we're looking at their description is because they're the main proliferator of this strain uh and uh they've got a great uh description on their website about uh it and how wonderful it is to them as well so it is a cannabis cup winning strain uh, flowering period is 40 to 45 days on these large yield 90% indica leaning strain so uh, from sensi seeds this precious afghani is descended from one of the finest hash making cultivars ever brought from the hindu kush to the west cannabis strains known generically generally as hash plants are found throughout the countries that border these mountains but very few have the pedigree of this hash plant a living definition of the stocky, chunky, beautifully sticky Afghanica genotype. The direct ancestor of hash plant was developed in the northwest USA and came to Holland as a few carefully transported female cuttings. And this is the fun stuff that you get from the people who, you know, are bringing you these strains. Upon arrival, the tiny, fragile hash plant clones were given a safe home in the Sensi Seed Bank breeding labs where this outstanding cultivar quickly proved her worth, becoming an important building block in several other Sensi hybrids. Over the years, many experimental crosses were made in search of a pollen father that could match up to the HP female and produce seeds worthy of the hash plant name. An equal partnership was eventually found in a male from Afghanica's other royal family, the Northern Lights line. A 50-50 HP crossed Northern Lights number one father, was back-crossed to the original HP mother, which gave us the 75% HP, 25% NL hybrid. Of all our breeding experiments, this crossing produced the strongest specimens by far, with even experienced Dutch smokers having trouble finishing a single joint. Thus, the hash plant seed strain was born. They go on to tell you a little bit more about flowering time and, you know, a few other fun characteristics of the plant. And while I'm not here to do a commercial for Sensi Seeds, uh, what I read in several other places was these folks are credited with being the proliferators of this strain. So when I found their description of it, I thought we'd go right to the horse's mouth. 
This came from the Pacific Northwest back in the late 90s, I guess. Um, so not far from uh, the Mel's Hole time frame. <laughs> Connection? Who knows? Maybe we'll find out. Uh, really great strain. Uh, my personal uh, reflections on it would be that, uh, and by the way, that, of course, as usual, will be included as a link in the show notes uh, to that description there. Um, but, uh, I've been really enjoying it. This stuff at times, uh, when I've managed to, you know, power through and smoke a second bowl of it, um, you know, you tend to associate indicas with the couch lock body high kind of thing. Oh, my arms and limbs are heavy, you know, that kind of thing, which can definitely be said to be part of the high when it's at its peak with this strain this particular one that i've been smoking but um noticeably you can get actually a bit of face numbness at a, at a certain point if you get stoned enough on this stuff uh and you know it's transient obviously it goes away pretty quickly but uh that was uh something that i noticed anyway and uh it affects us all differently um great strain uh i'm still you know a little more than halfway through that quarter probably, and we'll be enjoying it for the next few days. Um, and a great choice to check out uh, anytime you see it. I got mine up at Have a Heart in Skyway. So, hash plant strain. A lot of fun. All right, and welcome back. We're coming back in and getting ready to talk about the hemp history timeline. Last time we spent some time in this was uh, episode before last, where we left off in 1798, and Napoleon discovering that much of the Egyptian lower class habitually uses hashish. Soldiers returning to France bring this tradition with them. Sort of a budding habit, if you will. And he declares a total prohibition. Nipping that budding habit. In 1800, marijuana plantations flourish in Mississippi, Georgia, California, South Carolina, Nebraska, New York, and Kentucky. Also during this period, smoking hashish was popular throughout France and to a lesser degree in the U.S. Hashish production expands from Russian Turkestan into Yarkand in Chinese Turkestan. In 1809, Antoine Silvestre de Sassi, a leading Arabist, suggests a base etymology between the words assassin and Hashashin. Subsequent linguist studies disprove his theory. In 1840 in America, medicinal preparations with a cannabis base are available. Hashish is available in Persian pharmacies. Also in 1840, Abraham Lincoln uses hemp seed oil to fuel his household lamps. 
1842. Irish physician O'Shaughnessy publishes cannabis research in English medical journals. In 1843, French author Gautier publishes The Hashish Club. Going to have to look for that one. That we can find that in public domain, maybe digital. 1846. French physician Moreau publishes Hashish and Mental Illness. In 1850, cannabis is added to the U.S. Pharmacopoeia. In 1850, hemp lost ground to cheaper products made of cotton, jute, sisal, and petroleum. Hemp was processed by hand, which was very labor-intensive and costly, not lending itself towards modern commercial production. And I've actually heard that over and over again. Uh, and that would be, especially up until the really modern era, a valid counterpoint to conspiracies that the oil industry single-handedly, you know, facilitated, fostered the prohibition of hemp and cannabis products by extension. Um, but primarily industrial hemp, as it was perceived as a competitor. Um, also not true. Uh, we come to find out for that and the paper industry, uh, also often presented as a, you know, likely candidate for an interferer with the cannabis industry of the time. Uh, nevertheless... From 1850 through 1915, marijuana was widely used throughout the United States as a medicinal drug and could easily be purchased in pharmacies and general stores. So, because even, you know, we are aware that even without massive, large-scale commercial processing equipment, the types, uh, you know, that a cotton gin and, you know, industrial threshing uh, machines made possible for different uh, types of grains that were processed differently than cannabis usually is. Um, you know, careful cultivation and processing uh, diligently and efficiently by, you know, hand and semi-automated means that are gentle to the... Uh, plants themselves and, and preserve the yield and the properties of the, um, of the harvest, uh, you can make medicine, you can make uh, industrial products, semi-industrial products, crafts-type products, um, you know, DIY class um, products uh, of vast, diverse variety. So at any rate, that takes us into the 1900s and uh, the 20th century. <clears throat> and uh, we're going to wrap up with the hemp history timeline right about there for today. When we come back, we're going to jump feet first into the incredible story that we've been referring to 
inevitably, inescapably. No, it's not a butt, but it is Mel's hole. And we're going to talk about it. And it's going to be great. I suggest you go dig up some hash plant real quick. Go ahead, hit that pause button. Grab a lemonade out of the fridge. Whatever you got on hand. Come on back. We're going in. All right, welcome back. I hope you took good advantage of your time there on the pause button to get comfortable, get recharged, grab a cold beverage or maybe a cup of coffee or tea, and have your curiosity suitably piqued for the story of Mel's Hole. So to help you understand where this story comes from, a very well-known nighttime overnight radio show called Coast to Coast AM debuted back in the mid-1980s, and the host of this show, Art Bell, was a one-stop shop repository on the radio for many, many years, predating the X-Files era. Um, Coast to Coast was a show that you could call into overnight. Uh, You could just tune in and listen late at night from like I think it was like 11 to 2 in the morning or 11 to 3 in the morning, some craziness uh, like that, three to four hour block of time. Uh, and on this show, Art Bell would talk about everything from Bigfoot to missing persons to vampires to werewolves to stories of possession and the occult, ghost stories, you name it, alien abduction, common theme for discussion on Coast to Coast Radio. The show was 11 or 12 years old at the time of the Mel's Hole story, and so um, in 1997, we had uh, to paint a little picture for you, uh, for those of you who may not have been, you know, as old and, and out surfing the net already at that stage of the game. We did have an internet back then. Thank you very much. <laughs> it was a uh, baby internet compared to the one that we have today. Uh, Google would launch just one year later their Google search engine in 1998, just one year after this story began. Um, but at this time, while you had uh, you know loose assembly of web pages and circles out there, networks out there in the world, uh, the internet little resembled the, you know, spouting repository of all things trivia that it tends to be today. Um, you could perform and have fruitful searches on the internet at that time, but, um, using, much more limited search engines such as whether it was Lycos or something from AOL or a Netscape powered client at the time. We had AltaVista, a couple others. Um, You know, you just really were a lot more on your own out there and people were just beginning to, you know, build content for the web specifically. A lot of what happened back then was the digital, you know, uh, upcycling of 
analog media into digital formats and uh, a lot of that was a lot of the effort that was happening in those years so at any rate where i'm going with this is the radio was like the like the internet blogs that we read today the radio was a lot like the you know cool news outlets that we rely on so much today for our high fidelity super truthy news things like that uh you get the idea. So anyway, here it is, 1997. Art Bell has already received a fax from a gentleman named Mel Waters. In this fax, a primitive form of telephone-facilitated message sending, accomplished by a number of audible beeps and bloops by two machines on either end of a phone line, uh, Mel had described to the coast-to-coast staff a piece of property that he owned in the Manastash Ridge area of Washington State, a little-known sort of area outside of Ellensburg. If you're not from around here, you very well may never have heard of that area. Uh, Ellensburg itself is a smaller uh, town, almost city, uh, college town in central Washington, just off of the I-90 freeway and uh, out on Mel's property where he had a few trailers and uh, some other small sheds and things that they're operating out of um, and living on uh, they also had what he described as a seemingly bottomless pit this uh, bottomless pit as Mel described it it was about nine feet in diameter, nine feet nine inches, and uh, defies normal explanation by any standard that most of us would normally ascribe to things like wells or caves on property, weird natural features like this. Now, uh, I'm going to try to go chronologically here for the most part. I may move a couple of facts around where it makes sense to really clarify the point of the story. Um, my main goal here in bringing these highlights to you at all is to inspire you to seek out the original content. Listen to Mel and Art Bell discuss this yourself. In their own voices, I believe, lies the truth of this tale, if there is any to be found at all. So now, heavily summarized for brevity is the story. As I said, Mel's on this property in eastern Washington. They got a few outbuildings out there, nothing fancy, no running water, no electricity, generator type electricity, if anything. Um, at the time that he calls into or faxes into coast to coast they already were actually staying down in Ellensburg not out at the Manastash Ridge property where the hole in question was actually located the reason for this is a recent snowfall had evidently damaged a number of the buildings out there causing roof damage and things like that they were forced to retreat back to town until repairs could be affected on those buildings that's kind of important, as we'll find out later. But Mel sends a fax. 
Art Bell's team reads it, looks into it. Bell or somebody from his team gets back to Mel, is interested in the story. Mel's main ask with his facts was, can you folks, can your audience please help me ascertain uh, the nature of this feature on my property? Maybe you folks have some theories, This was the ask from Mel. The Coast to Coast crew was all too happy to oblige. Call Mel back, ask him to call in to a Friday night episode of the show. So, you know, that is also important to me because, and I get it, you know, you're running a show here. You you, you have open lines, and that was a big part of Al's show, of, of Art Bell's show, excuse me, was open lines. This wasn't an open lines call. This was a bit of a groomed, you know, uh, slightly prepared uh, opportunity to discuss this um, at the time that Mel called into the show. Now, I did consider playing a few minutes of this call uh, as some other podcasts have done but I decided it wasn't the best course of action for us Um, you know permissions uh, you know fair use what have you coast to coast AM is still a radio show to this day so I don't know how these other podcasts have done it without having trouble I'm not going to because you can listen to these calls as I mentioned so um, and I'm going to include uh, notes to the original three calls at minimum that uh, occurred uh, between 1997 and 2002 by our friend Mel Waters to the Coast to Coast show to talk to Art Bell. Um, those will be in the show notes. So at any rate, having previously faxed, Bell calls Mel back, invites him to call in to the show. He gets on the phone. explains to Art the story as I've summarized it to you. They throw garbage down this hole. They've been doing it for years. The people who he bought the property from, an elderly gentleman who had had it for decades, also has been throwing crap down this hole for years on end, decades. As long as anybody can remember, people have been chucking stuff down this hole. The hole never fills up. The hole takes everything you throw at it. The hole dampens sound over it so things that fall in that might bounce around along the sides of the shaft of the hole are not heard once they fall in according to Mel the pets dogs wild animals all avoid this hole like the plague birds don't even perch on the edge of it After taking possession of the property, Mel says that he did have a metal door, a hatch cover manufactured for it and installed on top of the hole to prevent accidental uh, wandering and falling in uh, by people or wildlife or or domestic animals. Uh, He claims it's not a well. He has done extensive, according to him, testing to ascertain that it is not a well um, and to ascertain the depth of the hole. Lowering it first, 1,000-yard spool of fishing line, followed by another 20-pound test, 1,000-yard spool of fishing line. Eventually, he unspools... Over 1,500 feet of fishing line, uh, over over a couple of thousand yards of fishing line into this into this um, hole, something like 
36,000 feet at this point. Before it gets too deep, he pulls that spool up. Gets ready to buy some fishing line in bulk. According to Mel, he's formerly a quote-unquote semi-professional shark fisherman. What that means, I'm not sure exactly. Um, But claims to be an experienced fisherman. Certainly shouldn't be hard in eastern Washington to go find a bait and tackle shop somewhere that's supplying for river fishermen for folks who you know even though you're landlocked in eastern washington you got plenty of rivers around here and i guess you could buy this stuff in bulk anyway mel gets some bulk line he's got a lot more now eventually he's got as much as close to eighty thousand feet of fishing line down this hole uh, it's 20 pound test supposedly they managed to put it all on a fish weighing scale you know towards the back to the top of the hit uh uh, opening of the uh, hole and uh, weighed the line itself along with the one pound weight that was affixed to the end of it. There's another little story that Mel tells about having tied some lifesavers to the line at some unspecified time and lowering them into the well in the in the hopes that if they contacted water and they allowed the lifesavers to stay dangling down there soaking in uh, potential water that might be contacted long enough that the lifesavers, if they dissolved and then upon retrieving the string uh, were discovered to be gone, then Mel would know that there was water at the bottom of the well. He described this as an old shark fisherman's trick, which sounds like complete malarkey to me because what fucking sharks are you looking for, dude, that you're not sure if they're in water? What, are you going down deep holes looking for sharks and hoping that there's water at the bottom of the hole and thus also sharks? Uh, so, yeah, old shark fisherman's trick. Okay, if you say so, buddy. Um, so, you know, Mel's on this call on, on call number one. Art did have open lines that night, so he encourages people to call in to talk to Mel and ask him questions. And, and these people, Art's callers, even in 1997, are a fairly savvy bunch. They, you know, asked him questions about how heavy that line could be at the end of the line. I mentioned that he had tried to weigh it after this call in answer to things like the challenges that come from several different people on this call mel does go back to the drawing board go back out to the hole and supposedly take some more kind of measurements and you know things that he's trying to ascertain for the listeners of uh coast to coast the better for them to help him uh solve the mystery of the hole um but uh, he does come back later on a second call and tell us that the uh, total weight of the line and the, and the weight on the end of the line was no more than 17 or 18 pounds. Therefore, the 20-pound uh, test line was uh, still holding up uh, for that, uh, despite the fact that something close to uh, 80,000 feet of line, and I want to say that's like 15 miles uh, in depth, have been lowered into that hole people did point out on this call that, hey man, how would you know if you're not just spooling it up at the bottom of the hole down there and, you know, just lowering more line in? Uh, You know, both Mel and Al, you know, breezily, deftly dodged that sort of uh, doubter with, you know, uh, assertions that, oh, well, you know, I could definitely feel that it's got some weight on it and it's, you know, it doesn't seem like it hung up on anything at all and we had it straight down the middle of the well. We rigged up a, you know, a a truss going across the whole 
top of the opening and you know you can climb out there on the little bridge over the opening of the well and and lower right over there and observe it going down on your on your way down um and we had the had the line on an outrigger you know a few feet out from the side so that's how we were able to uh control that and send it straight down the bottom of the hole okay so mel answers a few more questions from other callers uh, describes a few more odd things about the well, including a second-hand story about other people besides himself having observed a dark, black, preternatural anti-light of some kind emitting in short bursts from the depths of the hole. This is something that was reported to Mel by others. He didn't observe it himself firsthand. It comes up a little bit later in this story as well, as you'll see. Um, in addition to that, there is a story that Mel relates on the very first call of a local, other than himself, another neighbor from the region, who, for some macabre reason, decided that the hole out on this property was a fitting final resting place for his own dear departed hunting dog. And uh, this dude brought old Rufus the hunting dog out to the uh, hole one night and chucked him in. Per Mel, second hand from this friend of his neighbor, just a few days later, this gentleman spotted his own deceased dog collar tags and all out in the woods not far from the property and the hole evidently hunting with another group of people the dog would not come to him when he called so yeah Anyway, uh, a little bit more interesting stuff happens on that call. You can listen to it yourself. Uh, they run out of time at the bottom of the hour. Mel's hoping for some help from Art Bell's community and hopes to hear back from some folks via email or, or a letter or fax. Uh, they hang up, sign off. A few days later, just about one week later, Mel calls back into the show. talk to Bell again. He explains that just one day after calling into the show, Mel imagines that somebody somewhere was listening because he found himself while heading on his way back out to the property to pick up some personal belongings that they still needed back down in Ellensburg since they couldn't stay out at the place. Uh, that uh, he was blocked from access to his property by armed, weirdly military-looking people. Dozens of them. Out there. Already at his place. Road is blocked off. Trucks are out there, pickups, heavier trucks, 
yellow earth moving equipment, he described it as. The yellow equipment, he says, you know, earth movers. So I don't know if this is backhoes, dump trucks, graders, what it might be. But yellow earth moving equipment is already at his house. They won't let him in. He says, what's going on? They say there has been a aircraft crash near here, sir, on your property. Uh, it is it has been deemed dangerous, and uh, we need to conduct an investigation. Neither you nor anyone can come on the property for the time being until this investigation is concluded. And Mel says, well, I'll be darned. Uh, at least let me go on to my property and get my clothes and other things that I need. Nope, nope, no way, no way, no way. You can't come on property. We've just explained that to you. You know, no way, Jose. He says, well, that's not going to work for me. I need to, you know, I need to understand. I don't see any smoke out here. I don't see any evidence of an aircraft crash, no fire. Uh, you know, was anybody hurt? That's not important, sir. That's not information you need to know. Blah, blah, blah. You need to get on out of here now. Uh... Mel wasn't obviously wasn't very happy uh, and uh, didn't really accept that explanation. He did notice at that time, right then and there, that while they looked very paramilitary, he reported to Bell that he couldn't see any obvious insignias or markings for uh, the branch of the military that they represented. Uh, some of you may be aware, if you're from the Pacific Northwest, that out in eastern Washington we have a uh, large-ish, uh, some say very large, military training facility known as the Yakima Training Center. I believe this is under the control of the U.S. Army, um, ostensibly. These folks didn't have obvious Army markings or Air Force or anything else that uh, Mel could tell, and nor was any real ID offered from any of them for him. In fact, as Mel got more indignant and asked a few more questions to that effect of who are you folks and on what authority can you keep me off of this property, they very quickly switched gears and pointed out to him that it would be very easy for us at this point in time to ascertain that there is a drug lab on this property. It would be very easy for us to further determine that that drug lab was in fact a meth lab. And if we came to a determination like that, that could be very inconvenient for you, couldn't it, sir? So, suitably threatened uh, at this point, Mel shook, frankly, he shook, and uh, he retreats for the time being with vague promises to fight this down at City Hall and somehow return. Uh, side note to the slight strange appearance of the military, paramilitary individuals. At a later point in time, Mel reports that while digging around on the property in the dirt, uh, getting ready to plant some of his obscure, never clearly named Native American medicinal plants, <coughs> weed, <coughs> um, he had found a Walther P-38 on the property in the dirt. 
Uh, if, you're not, if you're not familiar with the Walther P38, it is a very popular sidearm, a semi-automatic uh, handgun pistol. I believe it is a favorite choice of NATO and a few other international uh, military and paramilitary uh, peacekeeping organizations. Um, interesting that a, a gun of that sort would have been recovered on the property. As with other things in Mel's story, there's this story about a gun that neatly fits his narrative in a very interesting way, and yet this gun is no longer in Mel's possession, having been used as a security deposit for a apartment that he l- later rented, uh, maybe the Ellensburg property um, that he was at, um, while the Monastash Ridge spot was getting fixed up so uh you know when when we hear about paramilitary people on u.s soil with no uh clear markings as to their branch of the military it at this period in time in 1997 folks would not have seen a lot of that yet um today these days uh you know if you told me that you saw some spook looking dudes in some military gear and you know, none of them really looked like they were really with the legit army. Well, they could be militia or they could be weird, um, you know, alphabet soup agency guys of some kind that are under deep cover or out on weird operations uh, here, whether that's NSA, DEA, FBI, CIA, whoever. Um, you know, these days I-, I wouldn't be surprised at all about hearing about guys who look like they're in the military but aren't giving up what military they're a part of or what branch of the military they're a part of. Back in 97, that would have been pretty uncommon um, still, and, and most folks wouldn't have been hip to it even if they were looking at it and seeing it. Um, the conspiracy theorist in me uh, hears something like that, and then hears the commentary from Mel about a P-38 being found on his property, and I say to myself, aha, this story has New World Order, globalist, Zionist connotations, like what's potentially weird NATO guys doing on U.S. soil. There are separate stories about that, and we're not going to cover them here today, but there's one tie-in, one connection with Mel's Hole with larger conspiracies right there. Uh, yeah, I, I did mention the point about the Yakima Training Center. It's an enormous U.S. government firing range and testing facility nearby to the Manastash Ridge area. Um, and that's another tie-in here with the Mel's Hole story to the potential um, deep underground military bases conspiracy theory that is popularized or was popularized by... Phil Schneider and a few others uh, in years past, um, people who claim to have worked for government contractors who build gigantic underground, you know, nuclear-proof, Armageddon-proof military bases connected by massive Hyperloop-style maglev trains that travel at hundreds of miles per hour underneath oceans and underneath whole continental plates to move the leaders and the elite around. Um, So... Uh, you know, we've got that deep underground military base connection. We've also got the potential for uh, a connection with the uh, live action military exercises conspiracy theorists, namely the Jade Helm conspiracy theorist folks here. And this is, again, 10 years before the first rumors of, of things like that uh, coming down the pipe. But it's, it's foreshadowing, perhaps, of conspiracies to come here. 
Um, aside from the normal concerns of pollutants potentially hitting the water table or otherwise causing pollution to spread from dumping things down Mel's Hole, there's the possibility that the U.S. Army, you know, would wish to investigate, control, or even cover the hole up for reasons of their own. Um, you know, probably far from just altruistic safety of, uh, you know, random passers-by who might be walking out in the hills there. Um, so, you know, Mel's been threatened. He's been told that, you know, they could find a drug lab on his property. He concedes to Art and to the rest of us that, well, you know, uh, I, I kind of do have a weird lab out there. Or I got some weird plants out there. I won't say what they are, and they're not narcotic, but, oh, they're, you know, iffy, and I could I could see how they could jam me up over them. What the fuck, Mel? What are you growing, dude? DMT, peyote, ayahuasca, what, what, what do you got? I don't know, but I'd love to know, because in all the calls with Art Bell never really comes clean about what that is. So, like I said, I'm saying it's weed. Prove me otherwise. Somebody else tell me otherwise. I don't know. Anyhow, they've threatened Mel. They've got him mostly compliant. They come back to him now with the carrot. For Mel's complete obedience, he's offered a whopper of a deal. A crazy deal. $250,000 per month lease on this property to stay away, to get the fuck out of town, to not talk about it to anybody anymore, to stay off Art's radio show, the whole Shazam. Obviously, he takes this deal. Who wouldn't? Mel uses the money and other parts of stipulations of the deal that he managed to slickly put together with this unnamed government agency. He goes to Australia. He gets a witness protection programmed out of the States all the way down to down under uh, with his dogs. No quarantine for his dogs, he manages to tell us because they're such VIPs. Uh, and uh, goes to work in Australia for the next couple of years doing medicinal indigenous plant research and single-handedly funding a wombat refuge. Yeah. You heard that right. Wombats. I don't know. I haven't looked. I didn't find one. Maybe I will. No promises on that one. Anyway, Mel spends the next couple of years off of the air. He's not on coast to coast. He's down in Australia, ostensibly, emailing Art now and then. That's about it. Comes home a couple years later, though, to see family, according to him. And uh, at which point, he gets jammed up all over again in a situation that eventually leads to him having the property seized permanently and him being banned from it ongoing. Uh, we're at about 51 minutes, by the way, and I definitely think we're tracking towards a small addendum to this one-hour session today uh, in order to be able to tie up all the loose ends on this story of Mel's Hole. So what we'll probably do is go about another five minutes right now, wrap it up at just under an hour, try to find a tidy little spot to wrap this thing up at, and... uh, get ready to turn this into a two-parter 
And uh, yeah, maybe what we'll do here is uh, basically call it right there. Mel went to Australia. A seemingly overnight multimillionaire. Paid off by oddball, unnamed paramilitary types. Who've got his property and his bottomless pit. His dog restoring, refrigerator swallowing, sound dampening, black light emitting bottomless pit. And he doesn't really have a clear path to getting it back anytime soon. But Mel's not done. Not by a long shot. Neither is Mel's hole. And neither are the strange occurrences that surround it. So, if you've had your interest piqued so far, I hope you'll tune back in for part two of Mel's Hole. Okay, and uh, having pressed pause on the story of Mel's Hole for the remainder of the show today, I'm simply going to close out by doing my usual round of thank yous for listening today to all of you wonderful listeners. I really, really hope a few of you will choose to hit that subscribe button on YouTube. Um, That's probably my biggest platform right now where this show is distributed. You can also find it on Libsyn, uh, on SoundCloud, usually. I'm having a little bit of challenges with my SoundCloud storage, so work with me there. Email me if you have tips about that. I'm looking at MixCloud. I'm on Google Play. So we're in a few places, and you can find us. But thank you for listening. Thank you for checking it out. Thank you to my friends Isaac, Palu, others who have given me great feedback about the show. Some of you guys have mentioned your interest in coming on in the future as guests, and I really look forward to bringing some of you in uh, in the very near future and doing some sessions together and having some fun with the weed and really talking about some of these conspiracies and stories together in a dynamic way. Uh, I also want to thank my good buddy Casey for his invaluable help on sound engineering and uh, definitely going to be spending more time dialing that in as all podcasters seem to do, uh, especially at the beginning of their process. Uh, We all care about sound very much. We know how much we enjoy it when a program sounds a little bit better and is more digestible because of it, and that is absolutely what I'm striving for for you folks every week right now. So that'll do for this week. I will be posting an addendum to Mel's Hole. It may be today. It may be a couple days from now. We'll figure it out. Between now and then, go out. Listen to the recordings. Find it. Coast to Coast AM. It's out there. It's really fun stuff. And uh, I think you should hear Mel's voice and Art Bell's voice because he's half of this story, as a matter of fact. 
since we're breaking it up, we'll have time to explore that in a little bit more depth in the next installment. So, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, even if it's the middle of the week when you finally do listen to this. And no matter what you're doing, don't forget to smoke indica and do shit anyway. <laughs>